Welcome to Integrative Medicine Solutions with Forum Health, the podcast. Our nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers believe in a new standard of healthcare, one that creates optimal health by focusing on partnering with you, understanding your needs, learning about your unique health history, and getting to the root cause of your concerns. Using advanced testing, emerging therapies, and the latest technology, Forum Health providers are at the forefront of integrative and functional healthcare for all. Your journey to better health starts here. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for a special masterclass on Long Haul COVID Explained. My name is Britt with Forum Health. For those of you not familiar, Forum Health is an expanding nationwide network of industry-leading healthcare providers who serve patients with a root cause approach to care. Our network of practitioners have decades of functional and integrative medicine experience drawn from areas in clinical nutrition, anti-aging, environmental medicine, chronic disease, lifestyle medicine, and much more. To learn more, visit us at forumhealth.com. All right, let's get started. Our panelists tonight are Dr. Stephen Morris from our Fond du Lac, Wisconsin location, and Dr. Andrew Peterson of our Utah clinics. Dr. Morris is board certified in internal and holistic medicine with experience in primary care, emergency medicine, and wellness and longevity techniques. Dr. Morris is considered one of the foremost Lyme literate physicians in the country, treating well over 1,200 patients with Lyme disease and is recognized as one of the top thyroid doctors. Dr. Peterson has over 15 years of medical experience and is an international leader in Lyme disease, addiction recovery, chronic illness, thyroid disorders, hormone therapy, and pain management. He specializes in areas where he believes conventional approaches fall short, such as hormone imbalances, chronic fatigue, diabetes, Lyme disease, and much more. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us tonight. You know, long-haul COVID has been in the news for quite a while now, and the CDC is now reporting that one in five people are suffering from this condition with a host of chronic symptoms. So to start off, Dr. Peterson, can you tell us what exactly is long-haul COVID syndrome and what are the symptoms? You bet. Um, uh, and I'll I, thank you for the introduction. And I'll say that uh, Steve and I have known each other for a while. Um, he is every bit the Lyme expert that you just said. And um, long haul COVID is really interesting to me as a chronic illness Lyme doctor because what we're seeing with long haul COVID is a is an immune reaction and an inflammatory problem secondary to a microbe and secondary to the body's response to the microbe. Um, and uh, you know, it's, I think it's making more real these autoimmune patients that have not been recognized as having a problem for for decades, whether they had Lyme or they had mold or they had Epstein-Barr whatever microbe they had. But because we all suffered getting COVID together for two years, it is so prevalent now. You can't deny the existence of this this long-lasting disease process that occurs after an infection for many, many people. You said in the question that uh, one in four, the CDC is saying one in five patients suffers with long haul. I have seen published data saying as many as four out of five have long haul symptoms. And so the incidence of this significantly higher than anything we've ever seen before with 
well, what happens after you get strep? Or what happens after pneumonia? What happens after you get Lyme disease? Um, I think one of the questions is how severe do your symptoms have to be before it's officially long haul COVID, right? And that's why I think those numbers vary so widely, one in five versus four in five. Um, if you've had COVID, you've had a virus that on the outside of the virus, there's a protein that sticks up called a spike protein. And that now coronaviruses have been around for longer than people probably. And so the co coronaviruses aren't new. This particular variant has a spike protein that binds tighter to what's called the ACE2 receptor than most other coronavirus spike proteins. And that binding at the ACE2 receptor causes inflammation. Well, there's a whole bunch of tissues in our body that have ACE2 receptors, whether it's our lung tissue, our gastric mucosa, um, vascular you know, um, our arteries. And so you can have inflammation from that interaction in any number of tissues. Well, if you have lingering inflammation, it's long COVID. Right? When you're acutely ill, the virus gets into your cell, starts replicating, you're making a bunch of copies of it, you're having the inflammation because as the virus is binding to the spike, pro or the, the spike proteins binding to the ACE2 receptor, you've got this initial inflammation. And you might have a fever and you might have a runny nose and you might have a loss of smell of taste and you might have you know, uh, achiness and all these different symptoms that feels like the worst. Um, but those lingering symptoms that are very similar that's now long ago, no longer continuing to make huge copies of the virus, but you continue to suffer with many of those symptoms. Steve, what do you want to add to that? You know, I absolutely agree with you, Andrew, is the fact that this is really a continuum. You know, what we're seeing in the practice is a lot of people may not even know they have chronic COVID until you start talking with them. And I do think I there's something between what is considered acute, you know, acute infection is going to be more the active symptoms that we're pretty much aware of. It's going to be the fever and the headache, loss of smell and taste, um, the respiratory issues with pneumonia, the gut issues, glucose. But it's a continuum where you may recover from that and have some transition. Feel quite right. These chronic infections that we're seeing like you said, Lyme disease, Epstein-Barr, whatever it is, is moving towards this chronicity that we are now discovering as long-haul COVID, or really all it is is chronic disease. You know, we, we want to always make up terms for infections, and I'm not sure why that is. You know, chronic Lyme disease is really not a term that's being used. They want to call it post-treatment Lyme. And instead of calling this chronic COVID, they want to call it long haul COVID. So I'm not exactly sure why we have to change nomenclature when really what we're dealing with is long disease. It's the body not responding the way it needs to respond to heal. And that's what really differentiates the acuteness. So the body will heal itself from the chronicity where it's still progressing, whether it's inflammatory, whether it's and autoimmunity, that's something we're gonna discuss a little bit more, but I feel it's a continuum more than anything. And it's not just with COVID, it's really with any of these infectious diseases that we see. I, I totally agree. And, and there's, this, there's this concept that we have that um, we get an infection and we're sick, and then our immune system kicks in and we kill all of the infection, and then we're well. 
that's misguided. See, what happens is we get, uh, we get exposed to something that's alive, whether it's a bacteria or a fungus or a protozoa, parasite, virus. There's debate about viruses being alive because they need our machinery. But you get some microbe, and the microbe starts replicating inside of you. Well, as it starts going up in numbers, your immune system sees this new thing. You've had no antibodies to it, and you start making antibodies. Well, now once the antibodies get high enough, you start killing the thing. And as the things start to go away, the antibodies start to go away because the trigger to make antibodies was the presence of the thing. So the presence of the microbe starts to go down, and then you get this homeostasis of very few microbes with very few antibodies. And that is the definition of being healthy. I didn't actually eradicate the microbe. The best example of this that I give to my patients is when people catch chickenpox. I got chickenpox when I was like seven. I can remember it. I lived in Alabama and it was hot and you don't want to have chickenpox when it's hot. You don't want to have them ever, but it was when it was really hot and sticky, it's worse. And uh, so, but I, do I still have chickenpox? Well, yeah, that's why I could get shingles if my immune system took a turn for the worse. I didn't cure myself of the virus. I still have a tiny bit. But the reason I'm not sick acutely or honestly chronically is because the number of viruses is low enough and the immune system is just responsive enough to keep me well. If my immune system were over-responding, I'd have some autoimmune problem. If my immune system were under-responding, I'd have shingles, right? And that's true of anything. You catch something, you'll always have some tiny amount, or at least statistically speaking, it's very likely you'll always have some tiny amount. And with COVID, if you continue to make spike proteins, you're making far fewer spike proteins than you did when you were acutely ill. You're going to continue to have all those symptoms, headache, achiness, brain fog, nausea, um, you know, just it's, it's all sorts of things, diarrhea, coughing, right? It depends on which part of your body, which tissue in your body has the most ACE2 receptors. If my gut is more ACE2 receptor full than your gut, I'm going to have more, you know, diarrhea and nausea post-COVID long-haul symptoms than you will, right? As opposed to Steve might have more respiratory issues. And that's why some people that get chronic or uh, acute COVID get a blood clot and other people can't breathe and it can kill you either way. Talking about the immune- long convoluted doctor answer. The short <laughs> answer to your question is post-COVID long haul syndrome happens in people of all ages. It happens frequently. And if you have symptoms where you still just don't feel right, you probably still have some inflammatory cascade going on with those spike proteins. And that's what we want to get into now, I think, is what do we do? Because that's very treatable. Right. Because indeed what we're seeing is both acute inflammation, which is really the hallmark of this infection, but it's also autoimmunity. And when we keep talking about autoimmunity and the immune system, and this is so passionate for me because I, I am a immunohematologist and my one of my passions is really getting deep into the immune system. A very simple way, if you can, is there there are monocytes and there's macrophages. And I don't want to get real technical, but this is relatively simple. Monocytes are primarily in the blood and they are one of our main um, immune cells that we want to have active during COVID. Macrophages are primarily in our lungs. Now these cells are destroyed 
by the COVID virus. And it causes a serious inflammatory process when that occurs. A good friend of mine by the name of Tom Levy, he's a cardiologist and is an attorney. Tom is probably one of the smartest men I know on the planet. He's written a number of articles, and the most recent one was in the Journal of Orthomolecular Medicine back in uh, December of 2021, where he talked about the use of hydrocortisone and vitamin C to help increase monocyte activity. And we're seeing monocytes being destroyed, not just in COVID, we're seeing this in, again, Lyme disease and some of these chronic infections, but not at the rate that we're seeing in COVID-19. And I check monocyte levels in all of my patients, and I say they have to be at a minimum of 500 cells. Most of my patients with chronic disease, including chronic COVID, they're down in the 100 or 150 or 200, and it's showing me that those monocytes just cannot keep up with this inflammatory autoimmune process that is occurring. So to get those vitamin C levels up is critically important that you not just take vitamin C, but also one of the medications we use is hydrocortisone. Hydrocortisone as a huge anti-inflammatory is very synergistic of bringing the vitamin C into the monocyte an increase of the monocyte recovery and activity to help fight off these infections. I have found this to be invaluable in, in my chronic illness patients, not just COVID, but again, with the chronic tick-borne disease, chronic Epstein-Barr virus, whatever we're dealing with. If monocytes are low and it's not coming up with vitamin C alone, we really want to think about additional use of things like uh, hydrocortisone. One of the things that you'll see us do as physicians is we'll give patients prednisone, which behaves similar to hydrocortisone, but I would suggest that the hydrocortisone is going to work better for the very reason you just explained. Do you, do you think that that's in fact the case? I, I do indeed. In fact, the way I dose it out is I usually start with 10 milligrams, of, and this is plain hydrocortisone that you get from Walgreens. It's nothing special. Uh, 10 milligrams uh, in the morning, five milligrams at noon, and perhaps another five milligrams in the afternoon, it depends on their level of fatigue. During that time, I also give them vitamin C in two or three forms. I use a liposomal vitamin C. I tend to use a buffered um, either pill or powder. And then I use a product called Formula 216 that will increase your inherent vitamin C levels. So I'll have them do three different kinds of vitamin C with hydrocortisone. And in the paper that Tom wrote, he does talk about the use of multi-forms of vitamin C with hydrocortisone. So I'm really kind of going off of his protocol, but I've adapted it a little bit. But um, great success. I'm telling you of all the things that has helped help the patient feel better, decrease the inflammation, help with the monocyte recovery, because we want to get that immune system going. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about LDN down the road here. but the immune system is where it's at. We, it's where the tire meets the road, as I tell my patients. Until the immune system is happy and recovered, there's gonna be symptoms occurring. The other thing that we're finding, and Andrew, I know you know this, is T cells and natural killer cells are being swallowed up quickly by these infections. T cells are gonna be your helper cells and your suppressor cells are gonna be going uh, when there's an acute infection and your natural killer cells are doing just that. They're going to go after anything that's not you. Now, natural killer cells are really used up in cancers, 
in tick-borne infections, and we're seeing it tremendously involved in COVID-19 as well. So these are areas of the immune system that we do want to get more active um, because we're seeing that in a minimum of 20% of patients, and I'm going to say it's got to be a lot more, like what Andrew said earlier, it could be up to 60 or even 80% of patients who have COVID are having some chronicity to their illness that we're seeing these autoantibodies develop. And um, that's a key to this whole immune riddle that we have with COVID. You know, Dr. Morris, I'm curious, is there a difference between COVID-19 symptoms and long-haul COVID syndrome symptoms? Well, acute symptoms, yeah. It's the, it's the things we kind of mentioned, the fevers, headaches, sore throat, loss of smell and taste, chest pain. And the thing about chest pain, and this is really something I want to stress tonight, if the audience feels at any time they have chest pain with a cough and a fever or not, but if they lose their appetite, it's probably pneumonia. That's, that's always a caveat in medicine. If you lose your appetite, always think about pneumonia. So pneumonia can occur with acute infection. And if it does, we like to give secondary um, antibiotic therapy because we're not treating the virus with antibiotics, but we're treating secondary pneumonias with antibiotic therapy. So if you tend to lose your appetite with a cough and a fever, really think about pneumonia and getting a secondary antibiotic like a Zithromax or something like that is something that we like to do. I, let me interject real quick here, Steve, that sure. um, just probably for clarity for patients, what I think Steve is saying is you got COVID and then because of the COVID, you got a secondary pneumonia. That means because you couldn't breathe good, a bacteria or some other infectious agent now is infecting your lung. And so, yeah, you got COVID, but you got to be even more concerned. That's why if you lose your appetite, okay, you don't just have COVID, you have COVID plus pneumonia. And when we say pneumonia, sometimes people think, oh, you mean pneumococcal pneumonia, that bacteria. Well, it could be that bacteria, it could be any other bacteria, but the you got COVID plus this other infection that happened because of the COVID causing it hard to breathe. So just wanted to make sure that the audience understood that. Thank you, Andrew, a very good point, yes, yes. And you know, what'll happen a lot of times, a physician will say, well, no, you don't take an antibiotic when you have COVID. Well, that's not what you're doing. You're taking it for a secondary infection caused from COVID, but it's a secondary bacterial infection, like Andrew just said. So thank you for that clarification. You know, Dr. Peterson. COVID, what would you see with long haul COVID rather than the acute? I mean, that's, would you say that similar symptoms only now, it's just these lingering muscle achiness, brain fog, um, the fevers are mostly gone. I find for my long haul COVID patients, primarily their shortness of breath is now gone. And the probably the three biggest symptoms are fatigue, brain fog, achiness. Would you agree? I do, although I see more uh, depression, anxiety. Oh, yeah, I know that's true too. Yeah, lots of mood things. You know, and, and the other thing is, and you have to kind of go backwards on this, in my idea, it's more of a PTSD. You know, they're developing, they've been cooped up for a period of time. 
Um, they are isolated. They may be more involved with drugs, alcohol, you know, stimulants, who knows, but they're really developing more of a post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's the recovery from that that we are looking at options. And one of the big options in my practice is hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Um, I was involved in a study called the Enber trial, which was a national brain injury rescue and rehabilitation, where we treated military personnel coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan who suffered traumatic brain injuries, post-traumatic stress disorder, and post-concussion syndrome, where we treated them with hyperbarics. And the use of hyperbarics for acute COVID has been studied with great success. But getting a, an active infected patient into a hyperbaric chamber has a whole bunch of issues by itself. But for chronic COVID, where they have mood issues, depression, anxiety, sleep issues, hyperbaric oxygen therapy is wonderful. And I think it's treating more PTSD more than the depression or anxiety or whatever, I'm kind of grouping it together more as a, a trauma because I think it really is. By the time the body goes through the physical and mental part of this, it's a trauma. Absolutely. So I'm looking at this as a true PTSD phenomenon. And use of oxygen therapy or even uh, EWA therapy, exercise with oxygen therapy where you get on a bicycle, or a treadmill or an elliptical and you put on an oxygen mask attached to a oxygen concentrator and exercise, even low exercise is good. It stimulates those endorphins. It gets the immune system more active. While you breathe oxygen, we call that the poor man's hyperbarics, can be very beneficial for all the things we've been talking about uh, related to this trauma related to chronic disease. I think COVID has really brought it forward. Andrew, you and I know in our chronic illness patients, we see this all the time. But in COVID patients specifically, I think we're seeing a much higher degree of this trauma or PTSD, if you will. I think so as well. And I think it's because for the last two years, our whole society, the whole world has been traumatized by what's going on and the discord and the the un, unease, the the fear. Um, and so you got that compounded with, and I got sick with the thing that everyone um, was talking about that we argued about at Thanksgiving. Um, right, there's so many layers to it. Correct. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And you're right, I mean, we all have PTSD from it in so many ways. Dr. Peterson, I'm curious, how long on average are you finding that symptoms are typically lasting with your patients? You know, it varies wildly. Um, I have patients who they get COVID. In my opinion, everybody that gets COVID should get treated and you should get treated as soon as possible. But they come in and they had COVID and they got COVID six weeks ago or eight weeks ago. And they'll tell me, well, I got better. And then, you know, I, it seems like some symptoms came back. And um, I'll talk to them and say, look, we should treat you. But some of them don't want to there's a lot of political controversy over me saying here i think you need ivermectin because of all these reasons and there's a myriad number of reasons that they should take ivermectin but they don't and you know some people after six weeks four weeks they're better and other people um i have i have a, a young man who is still symptomatic two years after i mean he's he's been sick since the beginning um and is I, I don't think it's appropriate to talk about his case at this 
podcast, but uh, some of these long haul COVID patients can be every bit as difficult. And I will say this for those patients that are the most sick, we're finding that they have more than just COVID. COVID was the straw that broke the camel's back. And they, if you look, will test positive for tick-borne diseases or mold or chronic Epstein-Barr. And so that's why they're so much harder. But if you just have COVID, and there's plenty of people out there that aren't chronically ill, they weren't chronically ill before COVID, they got COVID, and they'll be sick for somewhere between, in my experience, two months and eight months with these chronic lingering symptoms. If you will treat them, they can get better in two weeks. If you don't treat them, their symptoms will last and last and last. I agree. I absolutely agree with that. You know, I, I tell patients that you could be doing very well. You can be living your life pretty good. And then you have something happen in your life. It could be a car accident. It could be a fight. It could be um, emotional issues with finances. It could be going to the dentist. Something in your life occurs and your immune system, which is kind of dealing with things, all of a sudden can't deal with it anymore and it weakens. And then these things come to the surface. And in our chronic disease patients, we see this all the time. They had an event and then their symptoms came up. Well, that's what we're seeing in COVID. With our patients who get COVID, who are kind of dealing with things, they may have had tick-borne disease or chronic Epstein-Barr or something, and dealing with it pretty good, then they get COVID, and now their immune system can't keep up, and all these other symptoms are coming forward. So it's not just COVID that we see, it's COVID plus. It may be COVID plus Lyme or COVID plus Epstein-Barr or whatever. And it's it's beyond the what we're talking about in this uh, podcast tonight. But I think it's important to understand that this all still comes back to our immune system and making yeah. it as healthy as we can through exercise, through proper nutrition, diet. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about low-dose naltrexone. Anything we could do to help improve the immune system, which is primarily made in the gut, is what we want to do. And it all comes back to that. Yeah. The thing I'll add to that, and I think you said it, um, is... The, the sicker you are with post-COVID long-haul syndrome, the more we need to look for these other things. Correct. So if a patient has every symptom of long-haul COVID and they are just debilitated, they probably have more than just long-haul COVID. We have to treat it. And I've seen, I've seen some of these people with really severe long-haul COVID, and we treat them with ivermectin and some corticosteroids and some lotus naltrexone and atorvastatin and fluvoxamine and all the natural things like nigella sativa and vitamin D and turmeric and CoQ10 and quercetin, you treat them with all that stuff and they get better. Um, and, uh, but then I've seen the same exact patient, you treat them with all those things, they're not better. Well, you better look for Lyme or mold, right? So that, I, I think that's important for the people on this podcast to understand. If we have done those things and you are not well, you were teetering on the edge and COVID was what pushed you over. Correct. The other thing to remember, if you had an autoimmune disorder prior, you're going to be sicker yeah. later on. You know, they always say about, well, if you're older and you have diabetes and you have hypertension, all these things, and that's true. But truly, if you have an underlying autoimmune disorder and you get COVID, that's a big flag. 
I will also say that there's a genetic component to this, as there is with almost every other autoimmune disorder. There are people who simply are going to react more poorly. Uh, a, a, a really close friend of mine, um, in his family, they had, you know, people that with the vaccine had severe symptoms, um, uh, could not walk or write after the vaccine. So then another family member said, well, I'm not getting the vaccine. Well, that family member got COVID and died. Now, I'm not advocating for the vaccine or against the vaccine with that statement. What I'm saying is that genetically, this particular family has really, really significant ACE2 receptor COVID-19 spike protein interaction. And I don't think they could have chosen, well, should I do this or should I do this? In either case, they were genetically more at risk because of how their ACE2 receptors looked compared to mine. So that's, that's, that's real too. I'm glad you addressed that because that was actually my next question is who do you feel like is most at risk for developing long haul COVID? And it sounds like a lot of patients with underlying conditions. What about um, uh, individuals who are or maybe overweight? Does that put them more at risk for developing long haul COVID syndrome? Anybody that already has inflammation. So if you have inflammation because you're overweight, if you have inflammation because you have diabetes, if you have inflammation because you're old, right? Because as we age, we accumulate over the course of our life toxins and microbes that cause us to have sort of this underlying inflammation. Well, then COVID's going to be a little bit more difficult for me. So uh, I know my 18-year-old daughter, when she got COVID, she lost her sense of taste and smell, but didn't really feel bad otherwise. Um, I felt much worse than she did when I got COVID. Um, and uh, I can tell you that both of us got better much faster than I think we would have because we took ivermectin. Right. So um, the, the severity of how much you'll react is partly genetic and partly what underlying inflammation do you have already? Um, do you have autoimmune diseases like Dr. Morris said? You know, one of the uh, things we uh, see and we talk about is intermittent fasting. And mm. we, we recommend that because insulin resistance where your insulin levels are up and insulin is truly a hormone that can be inflammatory when it's elevated. And insulin resistance can lead to things like a pre-diabetes, metabolic syndrome, frank diabetes eventually. That's why we talk in our chronic COVID protocol about intermittent fasting, where you have your last meal, supper, let's say at six o'clock at night, and then you have breakfast at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning, that gives you an intermittent fast of 15, 16 hours that can reset your insulin, bring it down. That'll help with weight loss because obesity is an inflammatory response. And doing intermittent fasting will decrease insulin, help with insulin resistance, and hence help with the healing process. So in a way, your, your question, Brett, was perfect because yes, and it has to do with insulin more than anything and insulin resistance. The other thing that's great about fasting is uh, fasting is when your body can be most active in a thing called autophagy, where you are cleaning up the mess. Um, and so, you know, it, it's like it's like my kitchen. If I've done my dishes from the last meal, it's not time yet to make the next one. Right. Well, that's the case with fasting. If I haven't finished cleaning up the mess, let's don't eat another one. And the longer you fast, the more time you have for that autophagy. And that autophagy, that's just this fancy word for auto digestion, 
I'm cleaning up all this spike protein mess. I'm cleaning up all the cytokines, all the interleukins. Now I, I can finally get, you know, down where, oh good, uh, it's working again. The inflammation's down. So and I, honestly, I have patients that will fast, and this sounds crazy to people sometimes, three to five days and they'll drink water, they'll drink kombucha, they'll have tea or coffee, but they will feel so much better because they're allowing their body to recover. So I'm not recommending that to the listeners on the podcast without, you know, without knowing their specifics, but that can be very valuable. I agree. Now we have a nutritionist on staff that does recommend water fast for our patients. They are very hesitant, they're very reluctant, but after they do it, they say, I'll do it again. That's right. It's always a little hard to get started, but it does, you do feel better. Your energy levels um, really improve. I know just from my own personal experience, but it's a little tricky to get started sometimes. It's really the first and second meal. After the first and second meal, your hunger goes away. Then it's just a social yeah. aspect of food tastes good. And that's exactly it. It's a social part of it. It's difficult. Um, Dr. Morass, I'm wondering, Ken, do you feel like long haul COVID syndrome could possibly be prevented if you've already been infected with COVID-19? You know, I think I'm going to go back to the fact that nobody, uh, when we've been talking about treatments and planning and vaccinations and everything, nobody ever talks about lifestyle. You know, nobody said diet is important or nutritional supplements or exercise or attitude or prayer or any of these things can really improve your outcome. So I don't know about prevented because I agree with Andrew says, some of this is genetics. Some of it, you're gonna have, you're gonna draw the bad straw or the short straw. But I think we can do an awful lot. And I don't know if Andrew has seen this, but I know in my practice for all the COVID patients that I've seen, the ones that did the best were the ones that were proactive. Prior to getting COVID, they were on supplements, they were eating right, they were exercising versus the general population patients that we saw that were not. They were they didn't care about their diet. They were not taking supplements. They did not do as well. So I don't know if it's a prevention. I think it's a decrease your severity of illness because I don't think you can prevent this infection. It is so easily spread, even singing, you know, like conversation, you can spread this virus very easily. So I think it can decrease the amount of severity of the illness, but I don't think you can truly stop the spread. Yeah, it's a statistical question. And it's a public health question. Like, can it be prevented? Well, I would say if you know you have COVID and you start on treatment for COVID right away, the likelihood that you're going to get long haul COVID we know is lower. That's what the studies show. Okay, so did you prevent long haul COVID? Well, maybe, or maybe you just decreased the severity. Um, everything that Steve just said about lifestyle, well, that's how you're going to either get the mildest case of COVID that you could possibly get, or maybe you don't get it this time, right? Like when you're in school as a kid and Johnny brings strep throat to school and you don't get it, why? Well, because your innate immune system was robust that day, right? How do you get your innate immune system to be robust? You eat healthy, you get sunshine, you sleep enough, you, you know, treat others with kindness. All those things matter in your overall health. So it's fair to say we can do things proactive that will decrease the likelihood that we'll get it. But you could do all those things. And if you're that person that checked every box, 
and then you still got it. Well, that's because you still drew the short straw. Correct. Um, Dr. Peterson, what should someone do if right now they suspect they have long haul COVID syndrome? Okay, that's an easy one. I'll give you a straight answer because it seems like <laughs> okay. Dr. Dr. Morris and I like to uh, give you the, the whole story, and, and sometimes it's too much. <laughs> Very straightforward. They should have an appointment with one of the forum providers or a doctor that does similar things that we do. It doesn't have to be a forum doctor, but all our forum doctors know this. And they should take ivermectin. And they should take, if they have any respiratory symptoms, some corticosteroid, and they should take low-dose naltrexone. And depending on if they have muscle aches, they should take atorvastatin. And if they have brain fog, they should take fluvoxamine. And all of these things are contingent on, oh, they can take this drug because it doesn't interact with what else they're on, right? They should take vitamin D, they should take quercetin, they should do intermittent fasting, um, all of those things. If they want a, a sort of a straightforward guide, I, I love the website flccc.net because they have a protocol there. Now, uh, many physicians, Steve, myself, many physicians have protocols that sort of look like that one, but they have additional things, right? Because in my experience of treating hundreds of patients with long haul COVID, there's some things I'm going to add in there, um, like hyperbaric oxygen is a great example. It's not on their protocol. Why not? Well, because not everybody has access to it, but it's going to help everybody. And so it could be on the protocol, right? But it, the treatment for long haul COVID is really very straightforward. There's not anything uh, difficult about it. See, see one of us get treated. The odds that you improve are dramatic. Like you're going to, you're going to get better. Um, now there are hard cases and those are the cases of people that have something in addition. So I don't want to overpromise, um, but we'll find what that problem is if you have something in addition. I agree. And, and the other parts of this that uh, we can add in, if there's a lot of respiratory issues, chronic cough, chest pain, shortness of breath, we recommend a nebulizer. It's a simple mm -hmm. nebulizer with a mask where we can add in a little bit of food-grade hydrogen peroxide, some iodine. You breathe this in three, four times a day. It can have a tremendous impact. We use a iodine nasal spray because we know that the virus lives in the mucous membrane. So from the nose and the mouth and the throat, we can decrease the viral load just with a simple iodine nasal spray. So there are a number of things, and, and again, it'll be clinic specific, but even IV therapies like IV vitamin C or ozone, um, hocket type therapies, which are far infrared saunas and ozone generating machines. I mean, there's there's a lot of options out there. The biggest thing is becoming aware, be, become educated. And there is a website I really like to share with patients. It's about the LDN because a lot of people keep asking, what is LDN, low-dose naltrexone? And there's a website that was, they had to change their name because somebody stole it from them. It's now called ldnresearchtrust.org. That is a website that I think everybody should go on and really look at. Uh, it's one of the best uh, on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. It just helps boost our immune system. It helps shut off autoimmunity. We use it everything from cancer to chronic illness. Uh, it's used for mental issues. I just feel it's a, it's a go-to, and it's part of our protocol. So everybody yeah. that will be getting three prescription medications, you'll be getting a Ivermectin, low-dose naltrexone, and some quercetin. 
Uh, quercetin, um, we have found if we can compound it, we can get a higher concentration in and actually reduce the pill fatigue and also decrease the cost to the patient by compounding this uh, our, uh, through a pharmacy. So these are some of the prescription therapies we have along with some of the supplement programs that uh, Andrew mentioned. And um, in addition, and Steve mentioned a number of things like the iodine, the, the nebulizer, that can be so helpful to certain patients. Some patients that don't get better with these, with the sort of, all, this is the basics. There's peptide therapies. There's IV exosomes. There's a number of things that if at the first uh, visit you don't recover, there are more steps, right? But most patients don't end up needing those things. I would say 70% of patients improve in two weeks or, or around two weeks with just the, the standard protocol. I agree. I, I have a phone call after 15 days because we've kind of set this up on a 15 days. So I said, I want to talk with you in two, two and a half, three weeks. Majority of people are better. They said, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. My smell's back, my energy's back, my chest pain's gone, my nausea's better. I just feel so much better. We know we're going to be successful. Not, not everybody's like that, but the vast majority have that kind of improvement. And then for the people that don't, that's where peptides, exosomes, hyperbaric, IV ozone, IV vitamin C, that's where that comes into play. Correct. It really gives people a lot of hope that are suffering with these symptoms, chronic symptoms, which is wonderful. I hope so. It should. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're going to wrap up and we're going to open up the, the class to some questions from our audience. But before we do that, um, I would love to ask you, what is one thing you would love for our audience to take away from tonight? And Dr. Peterson, I'll start with you. Hmm. Um, I suppose it's what you just said. There's, there's hope. It will only be hope unless you're proactive, right? Be proactive. If you have any of these symptoms, it, and here's, I guess this is valuable to say too, no matter how mild, do something about it, right? If you're like, I just don't feel as sharp mentally as I used to. Well, great. Treat it. Take ivermectin and low-dose naltrexone and you'll get your brain back. Even if you just feel like I'm struggling finding words, there's no reason for you to continue with that for years to come. And you probably will if you do nothing. And so one, be proactive. Two, don't underestimate and say, well, it's not that big of a deal. Um, and three, there's no reason to despair because this is very treatable. My advice or my one thing is this. I'm, I'm congratulating everybody on here because education is key. Also, don't fall for the rumors. There are so many rumors out there about why are you prescribing horse medication. On the flccc.net website, there is a, another website called c19early.org. It takes all the information, all the studies that have been done for COVID and treatments and you can look on that site, you can click on ivermectin, and you can see the number of patients studied. I think it's about 150,000 now, the number of studies, which is, I believe, 92. And they update this every single day. And you can see the effectiveness of hospitalizations, ICU admissions, mortality. But the biggest reason we use this is because it increases viral clearance. 
Getting rid of this virus is so critical. It's a protease inhibitor. It's going to interfere with viral mechanism when taken with zinc. It's going to be, it's also antiparasitic and antiprotozoan. We know that. That's not why we're using it for this. But be educated. I think that's my one take home, and I applaud everybody in this in this uh, uh, podcast for being here and wanting to learn. Amen. Yeah, well said. Well said. And I think we learned a lot tonight. Gentlemen, thank you so much. This was such great information. I know our audience probably took a lot away, uh, a lot away from this. Um, I would love to open up the class to questions from our audience now. We'll try to take the next 10 to 15 mi minutes to answer any of your burning questions. So there are a lot coming in, gentlemen. Uh, let's see, we've got a lot going on. Um, let's see, somebody wrote in, can you tell us more about vitamin C and other drug regimens? That was from Steve. Um, I know we talked a lot about that. Anything else you want to add to protocols or drug regimens? Well, I will say this about vitamin C to specifically answer his question. Um, if you take more than about 2,000 milligrams of vitamin C orally, it will be hard to absorb. Liposomal will work better, right? And Steve talked about that. Um, but at a certain point, you just simply can't absorb more vitamin C. And so that's where intravenous vitamin C becomes very useful. Um, Intravenously, our vitamin C is an oxidative therapy, which means that it kills things. Um, orally, it tends to be an antioxidant, which means that it reduces inflammation in your body. So they're doing different things and they can be used together. Um, I don't know that there's a specific protocol that I would tell you, but I think Steve did a good job earlier of saying, look, I use these three kinds of vitamin C. Why don't you just tell them that again? Yeah, it's, uh, and, and again, if you want to go to Tom Levy's article, Journal of Orthomolecular Medicine, December uh, 2021. He's got the protocol actually written out, but it's going to include uh, liposomal vitamin C, a buffered vitamin C, either in a powder or a pill, and then a product called Formula 216. So those three are given together. And then if need be, I also add the hydrocortisone in at 10 milligrams in the morning, five at noon and five in the afternoon. I don't always use that third dose of hydrocortisone because that could interfere with sleep because it is a mild uh, a stimulant, it increases energy. But uh, I agree, oral vitamin C has a limit. IV vitamin C if available is always gonna be a, a huge add-on and complementary to uh, the oral uh, protocol. I want to say one quick thing about that hydrocortisone. I agree that giving it too late is often a problem, but there are certainly patients, and I'm sure you've seen them too, where you give them uh, hydrocortisone 5, 6 p.m., and that's why they can finally fall asleep. Absolutely. So don't be afraid. As a patient, when you hear us say things like that, oh, it might make you not sleep well, don't reject it out of hand when your doctor says, well, maybe we should do this in the evening. Because I'd say one in like 10, one in eight patients, that's the key to them falling asleep. So sure. it's really, really counterintuitive. What else so you got? One per, yeah, one person wrote in and they, they kind of have maybe some um, uncommon symptoms. And they're wondering if this could be long haul COVID. They're experiencing clogged ears, dizziness. Um, the constant need to clear their throat and nausea. Are these possibly long haul COVID syndrome symptoms? I, I think yes. Uh, what I would say about the dizziness is uh, 
Um, you're going to have inflammation, uh, clogged ears, sim similarly, it's inflammation. And whether the clogged ears and dizziness are together because this is more vertigo in the, in the cochlear vestibular system, or you have the dizziness because of more POTS and mast cell activation. So mast cell activation is this immune system really spiraling out of control. And, and that I see plenty in, in long haul COVID. Um, so dizziness, I would say for sure. Clogged ears, again, it's inflammation. Um, the nausea, absolutely. The, your mucosal tissue in your gut is one of the favorite places for the COVID virus to live. Um, we actually, there was testing here in, in Utah at uh, Brigham Young University, um, a, a big published study on, they could see where COVID was in highest amounts based on just testing the sewers. And they would just test the sewers and say, oh, look how much COVID is in the, in the, uh, in the you know, sewer because we're just pooping it out. Right. And so, yeah, of course, it's going to affect your gut. Yeah, I agree. Uh, great question came in. How long out from COVID, acute COVID, can a child be treated with ivermectin? Um, I don't treat children. Andrew, do you treat yeah, children? I, treat children. Um, I don't think it matters how long out from COVID. If they have long haul COVID symptoms, then they could be six months out. They could be three months out. I, again, would say the sooner you can treat with ivermectin, the better you will do because now you'll have less spike protein because you will have killed the virus. You will have prevented the virus from attaching so it can't replicate. You will have bound up the spike protein. So if you know you have COVID, start taking ivermectin today. But if you don't have it, start taking ivermectin tomorrow. It's like planting a tree. The best time to do it is 20 years ago, but the next best time is today. <laughs> well said. Oh, that was great. <laughs> Well said, because we've had a lot of questions um, about, is it helpful to take ivermectin a year later? Um, can you take it yearly? Um, yes. Should you be taking it seasonally? So there's a I lot of questions. Asking, but I will admit to you that when I get on an airplane, I take ivermectin before I get on the plane. Really? Yep. Just if one, I'm gonna go one to time? And I know there's going to be 500 other physicians around. I take ivermectin before I go. The other thing is, I've been using ivermectin in my practice for decades. This is not a new drug. It's exactly. been long. So when should you start ivermectin? As soon as you can. Yeah. And even prophylaxis, you know, if you want to do it one pill twice a week and stand it for the next year, I have no problem with doing something like that. You know, the so virus is all around. We're still seeing active infections. This is probably why Steve and I are both so comfortable with ivermectin. We both treat Lyme disease. Ivermectin was FDA approved for human use, I think it's 1997. Um, and uh, the prophylaxis studies on ivermectin, there are 17 studies showing its prophylaxis effect, 19,000 patients. It's 82% effective and the confidence interval is exceptionally tight. And so you can take ivermectin once every two weeks and you'll decrease your likelihood of catching COVID and therefore your likelihood of getting long haul COVID. It's just a no brainer. And I agree with when you travel, you should be taking ivermectin or when you're gonna to go to a wedding or you're gonna be in a taxi or whatever, take an ivermectin. You know, at least at this point, there's no downside. And, there, and it's been, it's not like, oh, we've studied it for the last two years. No, we've studied it for the last 25 years, plus the years before that, so that it could get approved. So anybody that's saying it's horse medicine, well, uh, I want to say something, but I can't on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> you can't. Didn't win the Nobel Peace Prize? I thought I yes, read that yes, somewhere. Yeah, yes, it yeah, yeah, it's been around for a while. So if that doesn't say enough. Um, 
Somebody you, just wrote in. Are there all, any? Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to just say we're using it in off-label for so many other things, from cancer to it's it's really a very very safe, comfortable drug. You should not have any reluctance with this medication. Definitely. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you both cleared that up because there was a lot of you know different opinions and information out there for a while. Real quick, um, real quick story. I know yeah. we're running out of time, but I apologize. Yeah. So I have a friend who works at the NIH and um, researcher back there. He uh, he uses ivermectin and has for years um, in in different because he's a um, he's a rheumatologist. But um, he he was giving ivermectin to a patient and um, the patient misunderstood the dose. She took sixty times the dose. 60 times the dose. Her side effect is that um, she uh, had a little blurry vision. Okay, so it is an exceptionally safe drug. Now, I recommend no one take 60 times the dose, right? But uh, that just pointed out how safe it is. Yeah, you can't take do that with aspirin. No. Good point. With no, Tylenol, you can't. You're not waking up after four days. If you do 60 times the amount of Tylenol, you'd be dead. You'd be dead. Right. Yeah. That's a great that's a great point. Uh, let's see. Somebody wrote in, are there any recommendations you have for chest pain? Is exercise encouraged even with exercise intolerance? You know, if you could, and I, I, I strongly encourage you to look up exercise with oxygen therapy. Low exercise is fine. I'm talking about if you have a treadmill, probably not, but if you have an exercise bike where you can just lightly pedal with oxygen on, that would be beneficial. Low exercise like walking would be okay, but I really like oxygen therapy in these situations along with the nebulization program with the, um, the nasal spray, the iodine, and the food grade hydrogen peroxide, doing that three, four times a day along with EWAT, and if you can find a an hyperbaric oxygen uh, chamber where you can get into, that would be the things I would really like to do. But there is something else I wanna bring up. There is a company that we are uh, involved with. We just made an association, it's called Heart Care Corporation. And they have a multifunctioning cardiogram device that we're now gonna be attaching to our patients. It's a 20 minute exam. It's gonna give us 23 different markers for heart disease. I'm sure all of you on this podcast saw what happened to the football player from Buffalo Bills, Darlin Hamlin, where he had a sudden cardiac event on the field. He was resuscitated, but the awareness came up about if it can happen to a professional athlete, can it happen to anybody else? What we're finding is post-COVID, we're developing a lot of myocarditis or heart inflammation. This new test is gonna be looking at 23 different markers to see if there is evidence of myocarditis, but also look at things like coronary artery disease, cardiac arrhythmias, hypertrophies, uh, congenital heart disease, coronary artery disease. So. Within a 20 minute exam, we're gonna be able to get all the data we need that we've never been able to gain before. This is an artificial intelligence program. We're very excited doing this. We're gonna be setting this up 
at the Fond du Lac Clinic in March. We're going to have one day set up right now where we're doing 25 patients. We're going to probably set up a second and perhaps even a third day if we get enough people because people want to know about their heart. Has my heart been injured from this? Is this chest pain I'm having unique to, to COVID or is it something else? And we need to come up with these answers. And this is the kind of technology that I think is going to become state of the art. And it's probably going to get rid of the typical EKG machine. And this is going to be the new technology with artificial intelligence that's going to give us immediate results about what's going on in our heart. So I, I recommend Heart Care Corporation if you want to get some information. There's a video on there that'll give you some uh, information as well. We're going to have a video on our website. I actually just did it today that's going to talk a little bit about this. And if you have any questions, certainly um, through Brit or whatever, we can certainly make that make that happen. I think that's a really good point. Um, and you know, we start out by saying, yeah, you can exercise and do these things, and, that, and that's true. And yet, this is not a disease to be trifled with, even long COVID, because um, inflammation of the heart, inflammation of the vasculature of the heart, um, inflammation of the sac around the heart, so whether you have myocarditis or vascular disease or pericarditis or whatever it is, that can still be going on. And um, there are people, athletes, you know, falling down dead, and they don't have acute COVID. They have long-haul COVID. So I would say if you have chest pain, you need to get a D-dimer and you need to get a thrombin prothrombin fragment and you need to get a, uh, a fibrin monomer, right? There are tests that your doctor should do to say, are you making microclots? And you need to get an EKG. And if you don't have access to this uh, test that they have in Fond du Lac, we need to do what we can to say, hey, we've got to reduce this cardiac inflammation because it's a real thing and it, and it can be a deadly thing. Now, for most people, COVID's not deadly. And for most people, long-haul COVID's not deadly. But it's, it's not something to, um, to uh, assume that your situation is going to, it's, it's statistics, right? I assume I'm not gonna win the lottery, which is why I don't play, right? Well, I, I assume I'm gonna be okay from driving in a car, which is why I get in it. But sometimes it doesn't work out that way. So if you're having those symptoms, there are certain tests that do need to be done. And there's things that will be added to your long-haul pro COVID protocol that would be specific to that, right? Like lumbrokinase or natokinase, um, endocalyx, uh, arterosil. There's a number of things that are specific for that area of inflammation from COVID. So really good question. And it's hard to answer. I think everything Steve said is right and all this other stuff might matter, right? Um, that test that he's talking about is really going to help you understand how much do I have to do, so. Great questions. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, somebody just wrote in and said, with long COVID memory loss, can I expect to have my memory return to normal after following these protocols that you mentioned? I'm gonna say yes. Um, the, the drug, I think, that makes the biggest difference for that, um, well, the, the, the big three, the naltrexone, the uh, um, ivermectin, and the quercetin, that probably makes the biggest difference. But then the one sort of add-on medication that I would be giving you is called fluvoxamine. And I've seen people's memories turn around and they regain everything. I had this guy that I go to church with. He didn't remember who his wife was. They called me in a panic. Well, two weeks later, he's fine. Right. So the answer is yes. 
you should see your memory return. And oxygen. Oxygen in any form, any way you can get it, is also going to be huge for memory. So Amen. if you do the EWAT, if you can do hyperbarics, if you can find somebody to help you with that, I recommend oxygen. Yeah, Steve is totally right about this, so much so that I actually just bought a hyperbaric chamber for my house. Um, oh, congratulations. That's yeah. great. He, he's the hyperbaric expert, in my opinion, uh, for the country. And so he's been talking to me about hyperbaric for years. And, oh, uh, it cool. arrived yesterday, Steve. So I'm setting it up in the bedroom. Excellent. Yeah. There you go. You can go over to Andrew's house. Yeah, we'll That's be right. over. We'll be <laughs> over right after this. That's right. Uh, Sarah just wrote in. She said, recently, my strength endurance dropped off suddenly. I had COVID a year ago. Could this possibly be related? I don't know. I don't want to say yes. Not everything's long haul COVID. I mean, it could be related, but I doubt it. I think there's another eight things I would think of first. Well, is the strength, I mean, the only thing I'm looking at is neurological. If there's a neurological, is it, is it muscle weakness? Is it muscle pain or is it both? I guess that would be the biggest question I have. Well, and is it endurance like she's tired in the afternoons and it's more related to the endocrine system? Everything's interconnected. And when you talk to a guy like me or Steve, we're going to think, oh, how does it all connect back? And it could be related, but is it because of, um, you know, is, is it directly COVID or is it indirectly related? The short answer is we don't know, but the long answer is possibly. I mean, yeah. there's a neurologic component in my mind that may have an impact, but it could be multifactorial, it could be endocrine, it could be uh, mitochondria dysfunction. I mean, the mitochondria can be beat up by these infections. And, you know, looking at mitochondria dysfunction, the mitochondria is the engine of the cell. And if that's not working appropriately, we've got to revive that, whether it's going to be through, you know, ribose or CoQ10 or whatever we need to do to bring up the the mitochondria, and sometimes we use peptide therapy uh, yeah. to bring up the mitochondria function. So, yeah, yeah, short answer, possibly. And there's like the things that Steve just mentioned, uh, ribose, uh, vitamin C. Um, there's a supplement from a company called Research Nutritionals called ATP360. I mean, that, that'd be an easy place to start and say, I wonder if that will help. Well, probably it'll help, but it's, it's yep. multifactorial. I think that's the sort of thing that somebody that has had that, it would be worthwhile to see a functional doctor and say, hey, this is what happened. Let's look at the possibilities. And even things like NAD+, both IV and oral, yeah. may, may help that quite a bit. Yeah. Um, somebody has a question. Can my immune system ever recover after having long haul with these protocols? Absolutely. Without a doubt, 100%. Now, will it recover back to where it was prior to COVID? We don't know because we don't know what the baseline was. You know, when we did this Enver trial where we said, where we uh, treated military personnel coming back, we didn't have a baseline where they were at prior to their injury. I wish we did. But we don't have a baseline immune panel done prior to you getting sick. So all I can do is get your immune system up to where I feel it's relatively normal. And when that happens, things should really be good. But I'm absolutely convinced we can recover an immune system 
unless there's other things going on. If there's an underlying cancer, underlying chronic infection, we've got to treat that. You just, it can't ignore the other issues causing the immune system to be weakened, but recovering the immune system from COVID absolutely can be done. Yeah, when you ask a question like that to a functional integrative doctor, we're optimists because we're looking at the underlying cause. And so the odds are in your favor, right? We look for the cause. If we find the cause, then we fix that. Then you got better, right? The body's healing itself all the time. And all we're doing is trying to assist it. So I agree wholeheartedly. The answer is yes, um, with the caveats of, well, if we're smart enough to figure out all the causes. Correct. A really great question came in. Are there any treatments that are safe during pregnancy? I'm going to look up on Hippocrates, but I, yes, low-dose naltrexone is safe during pregnancy, and yet, has it been shown as a category B? Well, no, because we don't do studies on pregnant people. It's unethical. Is it safe? Yes. Does the pharmacology make sense? Yes. Would I take it? If, you know, would I give it to my wife if she were pregnant? Yes. Um, I'm looking to see what the... The only time I can't, well, one of the only times I can't recommend hyperbarics because that is a contraindication, unfortunately. Uh, but oxygen with oxygen therapy or exercise with oxygen therapy is appropriate. Um, LDN, absolutely. The majority of our protocol is appropriate. I don't believe I would use ivermectin. So here's what uh, the physician drug reference says. It says, uh, clinical summary, weigh risks and benefits during pregnancy. Risk of teratogenicity, that's uh, birth defects, not expected based on limited human data. Um, so uh, that's, a, that's a tough one. Like when you, you have to weigh risks and benefits. I think if I, if, if my wife were pregnant and she got COVID and she were struggling to breathe, and she had an oxygen saturation of 82, I'd give her ivermectin. Because I know neither she nor the baby will do well without oxygen, right? Now, if my wife had long haul COVID while she was pregnant, I'd probably think, well, okay, the benefits maybe aren't as important as the risks, and so I probably wouldn't give my wife ivermectin. I'd for sure give her vitamin C, and I'd for sure give her quercetin, and I'd for sure give her turmeric, right? Um, so uh, another option is you could give black cumin seed. Nigella sativa is extremely effective against COVID and it's somewhat a replicator of ivermectin. So if you look at the chemical composition of black cumin seed, it's very similar. And I've used black cumin seed a lot in my patients, both for acute and chronic. You might be able to get by with black cumin during pregnancy versus ivermectin if there's concern because like Andrew said, we just don't know. And the reason we don't know is because it would be unethical to do the study, so we'll never know. Correct. Great. Uh, let's see, Stephanie wrote in, she said she's been dealing with long haul COVID for three years, extreme fatigue, and it caused her to have high blood pressure. Is there any protocol or any treatment to help with high uh, blood pressure? She's currently on a keto diet and doing intermittent fasting. Well, I guess we're assuming that she's already done the things that we talked about, like ivermectin and hydro, uh, hydrocortisone and um, 
you know, all, all of those things. If, the, if all of those things have been done, um, then I would say we got to look for other things that would be causing this inflammatory response to persist with respect to her vasculature, right? If you have high blood pressure, it's because you've got inflammation in the, in the arteries and you can't, you don't have the normal um, stretchiness, if you will, of the arteries. So what's going on? Does she have heavy metal toxicity? Does she have mold toxicity? Something is keeping her immune system from recovering. That's, that's what I would think. If she were here in my office, I'd start to say, what are the other things that are keeping this from happening? As far as a protocol, um, anything that's gonna increase nitric oxide would be helpful. Uh, berberine would be helpful. I agree. Um, oxygen would be the other thing is, I go back to a functional physician that can really evaluate her intracellular, again, the mitochondria dysfunction. Um, I'd be looking at NAD plus for, um, you know, really getting, I, I would probably be doing IV. I would also do a product called PLAC-X. Yes. Um, you know, these are some therapies that will decrease inflammation at the cellular level. It'll help uh, quiet down the... Uh, this inflammatory response that's occurring at the at the vascular level and causing endothelial dysfunction, basically. What would be really important for is the endocalyx, Steve. Yep. That product, endocalyx would be if I if I could only recommend one thing to her, it'd probably be that. And you can you get know, that. I can't remember, I think it's called NewLife.com that has endocalyx. And I know we have Arteriosil in the in our formulary, and I've been looking, trying to see compare those two, but I think. That looks like a pretty good product that we might want to bring on board. Yeah, those two products were developed by the same researchers. And uh, Arterosil, from what I've been able to um, understand, um, it's going to have a bigger impact on large arteries, where the endocalyx is going to have a bigger impact on capillaries. Um, if she's got hypertension, I think she'd want to be treating both of those. They're not sure. identical. And um, Orthomolecular just came out with an endocalyx product, too. I think it's called Endocalyx Pro. Um, oh. Excellent. Yeah. And this so, is a perfect patient, uh, Stephanie, that if you could find, if you can go to HeartCare Corp and get on their website and see if you can find a machine in your area that you can sign up for and get a test done. I think you probably want to know what's going on in those 23 markers we talked about, because that could really change uh, your treatment plan. Um, Bev just wrote in and she wanted to know more about microclots and how to prevent them. Well, we're doing that workup that we talked about, the D-dimer, the fibrinogen, PT, PTT. Um, you know, a lot of the, our patients are on aspirin. I also like to look at um, uh, cardiolipins. Cardiolipins are important markers for viscosity, thickness in the coronary arteries, primarily in the microcirculation of the heart. So doing a good evaluation to see what the markers are is the first thing. And then getting back to what we just talked about, about the endocalyx, about the arteriosil, doing the evaluation to figure out what's going on because we've got, what is it, 24,000 miles of blood vessels in our body, but it's the small little guys that really are the ones that we're most concerned about. And those little microclots can be an issue. So a baby aspirin, 
Enterocoda baby aspirin is fine as long as you don't have any allergy to aspirins and you don't have a contraindication for it or a drug interaction. But there's no problem with that. You know, even for acute uh, COVID, I think going on four baby aspirins, kind of like a heart attack, it's one of the things that we like to do right away. I like to use a lot of lumbrokinase. I like that better than natokinase. Uh, earthworm casing, I think it's uh, it's much more effective. Um, and then, you know, things like fish oils. And our protocols that we have, including magnesium, are going to be important for all of that. Mm, that's a good point, too. Magnesium, and that will help that patient that asked about the uh, hypertension. Yep. Um, another thing to say about microclotting. So just so people understand this, we're always clotting. We have to. We're supposed to, because otherwise, when you bump your leg into your you know, nightstand at night, you'll bleed to death. So what's happening is you've got this artery, and every time the heart beats, it stretches a little bit, right? That's what, that's what your blood pressure is. is at, at, its at its highest, it's when it's stretched, when your heart just beat. And at its lowest, it's when the heart's filling back up and it's relaxed, right? But the pressure doesn't go to zero, thank goodness, or you die, right? You can't have too low of a blood pressure is bad. No blood goes anywhere, right? So as it's stretching, the little endothelial cells can be damaged, right? They just get injured. And then we make a little clot. And then we replace that cell and then we take the clot apart. So we're supposed to do that. So if you can't clot, well, then you have a whole different problem. You'll bleed to death. So you're always microclotting. The issue is, are you doing it too much? Right? Like everything in the world, too much is bad, too little is bad. Whether we're talking about food or friends or sex or whatever, too much is bad, too little is bad. And so we when when you have COVID, now you're gonna clot more. And everything that Dr. Moresh just said is going to be helpful to make you not clot too much. But you can go overboard, right? Don't take 10 aspirin. Um, don't, 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 don't eat natokinase seven a day, right? Like we need to clot, but so, so I don't know if that's helpful to patients to understand. Look, because we hear these terms, oh, now we've got microclots. I don't want microclots. Well, you do, you just want them in the right place at the right time. And Bev, you know what I'm going to say, hyperbarics is wonderful for microclots. I mean, obviously, you're increasing oxygen carrying capacity 14-fold over room air. Uh, you're causing a stem cell activity. That will have an impact on your vasculature. And again, oxygen therapy and hyperbaric oxygen therapy will benefit as well. That's great. This is a great question from Lynn. Can blocked detox pathways cause issues with COVID? And if so, what can be done? You're talking about genetic block detox? I don't know for sure. Maybe she's talking about like um, related to gut health and uh, detoxing the, the, the toxin or the toxin buildup in our bodies possibly. I mean, well, we I would have, say not directly. Have, Go ahead, yeah. Steve. Well, I was just gonna say, when we kill things, we have to clean them. You know, when we kill an organism, we create a biological toxin or a biotoxin, and we've got to get rid of that. Otherwise, you're going to get build up toxins. It's kind of like a teeter-totter. If you do a lot of killing and not a lot of cleaning, you're not going to feel well. So getting rid of the toxins or detoxification is critical. And we know this if you are constipated, you don't feel good. You're not getting rid of your toxins. So if you have a blocked detox pathway, and I'm wondering if 
she's thinking more on the genetic side or are we talking more of just not cleaning out the toxins because you don't have a good program going it's critical you've got to get the detox pathways open um dr marcelin just responded and said it is the genetic side it is genetic so i think what i would do is there is a test i like to do and I don't know if she's done this. It's the 23andMe followed by the NutraHacker. The NutraHacker gives us medical information. Now we can't change the genes, but we can modify the mutations. So sometimes we have to override that mutation in order to get it to work fun and function appropriately. For example, a vitamin D receptor abnormality, we may have to give five or 10 times the amount of vitamin D to get the effectiveness of that hormone. Vitamin D is a hormone. And we won't know that unless we do the test. So we can't change the gene, but we can modify the mutation. So maybe they have a problem with their glutathione pathway or a problem in their methylation pathway that we can get. If we have the information, we can override that mutation by giving additional therapies. That's probably what I would recommend. Great. Thank you for answering that. We'll probably take just a few more questions. Thank you for everyone for writing in. Um, I know there's a lot of questions about this. Um, Brian wrote in, he said, can you discuss the use of, uh, it looks like Maraviroc and um, Prevacetin in the use of long COVID? I don't know if I'm pronouncing those correctly. Um, sure. Uh, so I, I would say Maraviroc, but I'm not sure that Maravirac. I'm saying. Um, it's an antiviral. It was historically used for HIV. Um, it's I've not seen it be effective, but see, it's sort of step three in the protocol uh, with, with as far as the FLCCC goes. And so you've you've done all these other things, and the people that get to that step, in my experience, are sick with other things. And so I've had patients that I've given that to hasn't made a difference for them. Um, I don't know that that means it's not going to make a difference for anyone but I just haven't seen it be useful. Now, pravastatin, um, I actually use more atorvastatin than pravastatin. Um, the way I would explain how statins work is they are moving where inflammation is at, and they will move inflammation out of the vasculature into the muscles. And so if your problem is primarily inflammation in the vasculature, it's a valuable thing to do. And I've seen patients have meaningful improvement when I put them on atorvastatin or, and I'm sure the same would be true of Pravastatin um, when I give that drug. And, and the way that I think most doctors would give that drug for COVID would be, look, you're going to take this probably for two weeks minimum, and more likely you're going to take it for a month to three months. And what I have my patients do is when their symptoms start to improve, their achiness, um, their fatigue, they take it for another two weeks past when their symptoms resolved, and then they can stop. They don't need to stay on pravastatin forever. It's not for their cholesterol. It's for the inflammation. So I've seen that be really useful. The Maraviroc, I can't say any clinical experience that showed utility, and I've used it a handful of times. And this is where I would also think about using more ozone. If you have availability for a provider that can do ozone therapy, I think this is where I would really want to utilize it plus NAD plus, plus high dose vitamin C. You know, I just think we're looking more at an IV patient at this point. 
along with hyperbarics. Have you ever seen Maravarock make a difference? No, no. Although, in all honesty, I'm not using it that much. I'm really not. But even on the FLCC data, right. I just think it's um, it's a huge difference maker. Yeah, and and I think part of it is because they these are the sickest people. Um, so the, I think the 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 conjecture between behind why should it be included in the in the protocol it makes sense. It's an antiviral. Sure. Seven. And we're going to take this last question. This person um, has been suffering with severe esophagus issues since COVID. Any connection there? Any suggestions? I think so. That's a mucosal tissue, and COVID likes those. It's full of it's full of ACE2 receptors. So it just the virus is going to those receptors, and it's causing the issue. And not a COVID protocol is necessary. I would I would bet, and maybe they didn't know this, but they had some esophageal inflammation to start with, which was what made that the weakest link. Now, it may simply be that they have more ACE2 receptors in their esophagus than everybody else, and they probably do, but I still think that maybe they had some, you know, maybe early Barrett's esophagus, some, you know, acid, whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, I, that's a mucosal tissue, and those are the most known to be problematic long-term. Well, gentlemen, that's about all the time that we have. Thank you so much for all of this information, for answering everyone's questions. I know we tried to get to everyone. We really appreciate your time and expertise. And I think the most important takeaway, like you both said, is hope. There's hope to heal um, and, and hope to, to feel better and get back to how you used to feel before you had COVID. Um, I wanted to mention, if you'd like to learn more about our long haul COVID syndrome treatment at a Forum Health Clinic near you, please visit us at forumhealth.com or call us at 855-467-5922. Again, that's forumhealth.com and the number is 855-467-5922. Um, also in the meantime, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We have tons of great content on a variety of health conditions um, and wellness plans. So please make sure you connect with us there. Again, Dr. Mraz, Dr. Peterson, thank you so very much. And thank you for everyone for joining us tonight. Thank you, Brett. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Forum Health Podcast. Forum Health is the first nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers. To learn more about this topic and to find a Forum Health provider near you, visit forumhealth.com.